So tonight I'd like to continue our exploration of Buddhism and death. And uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about myself and my own relationship to death. Um, when I first started meditating, um, I practiced with a kind of a guru-ish person where I learned some things, but he wasn't so um, morally ethical, even though he had a lot of cities, cities are powers, and uh, a lot of very powerful stuff happened there. But I, and, and I learned to uh, appreciate meditation very quickly. Um, but I, uh, he ended up kicking me out of his group after about a year, maybe not quite a year, because I wasn't uh, devoted enough to him and his way of teaching. Um, and, um, and so I started looking around for where could I meditate, because I was meditating about five times a day at that point at home. And I hadn't done retreats or anything like that. I'd done some retreats with this guru. But, um, and so I looked around, and you could go to Zen Center at 5.30 in the morning, 5.30 a.m., and you could go in and you could sit at Zen Center here at San Francisco. And uh, you didn't have to relate to anybody. You could just go in, sit, and then you could leave. And for me, that was perfect. So I went and uh, you go and you go into the the zendo and you take a seat. And it's a different style of meditation. It's all about form, you, what foot you put through the door, and things like that, and how you sit on the cushion and when you turn, and and then you sit facing a blank wall. And there's no instructions or anything. And at the end, there's a bell and you ring. But what calls you to the sitting is really um, something. I don't have anything. Oh, yeah, I can do it here. It's a big block of wood. There's a big block of wood like, like this size, maybe a little bigger even, and it's thick. And, it's, and they bang on it and they hit on it, you know. And this, for the about 10 minutes before, I don't know the actual timing, but something, they start doing it. And then near the end, they get faster. And if you're not in the zendo, by the time they do the last, you can't go in. You're not allowed in. And, and uh, so, okay, I got it. That's, this is the call to practice. But what I want to talk about is what was written on the block of wood. Because what's written on the block of wood is um, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. And so that was powerful, I thought, a power for me. It was a powerful call to practice and to meditation uh, and that has never stopped. And I still appreciate it. One of the beautiful things about this 
I forget what it's called, the Han maybe? If any Zen people know, you could nod your head, the Han. Yeah, thank you, uh, Lisa. Um, the Han, right? right? And so they're hitting it, and they're hitting it over years until it starts to develop a groove in it, and then a hole in the wood, because it just gets hit so much. Right, Every time they do a meditation, this is what happens, until the Han dies, right? And then there's a and then all of a sudden there's a brand new Han that's totally hasn't been hit much. So, and I was like, I was like, oh, I want a dead Han, but they wouldn't. I could never get one from Zen Center. They wouldn't give it to me. But you know, that's just my oddity. But I like the Han, um, and I like the dead Han because it was so poignant. Because it was exactly what. It was said on there, right? Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Even for the Han, it only lives for a certain period of time. And so then I started to get into Buddhism more, and I got really interested in the Zen Hospice Project was starting up. And it actually was started up when I was on a long retreat at Spirit Rock. By then I was doing Vipassana practice. And... And uh, so I wanted to join Zen Hospice. I was interested in doing hospice work. And it was clear to me that death was one of the portals to awakening. And so I uh, applied and I called a bunch of times and they never answered my call. Finally, after about the eighth call, um, they finally called me back. And it was somebody who's now my friend, Frank Ostaseski. And... And he was, and he said, "Well, what do you want?" And I said, "I'd like to, you know, volunteer and be part of the hospice." And he said, "Well, we've already done the training. You missed the training. We can't let you in." And I said, "Well, I'll, I'll do anything if I can help you in any way, and let me know." And he said, "Well, okay, give me your number." And you know, I, actually, what he did is he said he had me come in and check me out to make sure I was okay enough to even think about letting me being a volunteer for the Zen Hospice, that I wasn't too weird or too crazy or anything, which I can be at times. But, um, and so, um, and then he said, well, we'll just call you, and if there's, if we need somebody to go get medicines or something like that, you can go do that, because you haven't been trained. And then they got their first person in the hospice, which they didn't even have yet. And um, and then he called me and he said, well, we need somebody to do, uh, I can't remember, a four-hour session, three-hour session with someone. And I was like, sure. And he said, okay, you come and I'll meet you. We have a person at Zen Center who's dying. And meaning it's not, wasn't a Zen Center person. It was somebody they took in because they didn't have a building or anything yet. And they took this woman in to Zen Center and uh, were caring for her. And uh, and so I went there and I thought, okay, Frank will explain everything and show me what to do. And, and I get there and Frank takes me in the room. He introduces me to Stella. I meet Stella who's in, in a bed and dying. And then he says, okay, I have to go. And he leaves. And I had no idea how to do hospice work. And, um, uh, but Stella taught me. She was just great, a beautiful being. And, uh, 
and really, you know, she, what happened was I was trying to move her, which is an art in and of itself when somebody's dying and she was bigger than me, Stella, and um, and uh, I didn't know how to move people then, I hadn't been trained. and. And at some point I told her, oh, I'm really sorry, Stella. I, you know, I don't know how to do this. You know, you're going to have to help me. And she laughed. She said, oh, dear, we all need a little help sometimes. And, uh, and then she helped me and she taught me. And uh, it's very moving. And then, and of course, today as I'm thinking about people who've died and who haven't died, both, um, Stella came to mind, also another man who I, after I'd been in the hospice a while, and then there was a, a hospice was started in the Castro, in the AIDS part of Castro, excuse me, in, uh, yeah, hospice had started in the Castro when the AIDS epidemic had started and uh, people were dying. And so uh, we got a call and Frank said, you go. And I said, okay. And I went and uh, and uh, there was a young man in his bed and I was told he's dying. He could die within three days. And I go and I meet JD and JD's lying in his bed and his hands and arms are flopping like this. And he's lying basically unconscious. And he's lying and he's just flopping. And so I, they introduce me to him, but he doesn't act, you know, he's not conscious in that kind of way. And then, but his arms are moving. So I just sit there and I'm really holding his arms. So he's not hitting himself so much. And, and I'm just sitting with him and talking to him and being with him. And, and then I had to move him. I remember. And at, at some point I said, and and he was hadn't said a word to me, right? And then at some point, I I went to move him, and I said, uh, JD, is that okay? How how does that feel? I said, how does that feel? And JD, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he said, it feels like I'm God and you're a saint, like in a voice that loud. And I was like, whoa, he could be right, you know. And on a certain level, he is right in terms of him being God in that way. I mean, it was quite moving. And uh, and here's the wild thing. So J.D. was in the hospice. They thought he would die in two, three days, and then he kept living. And uh, And I kept working with him, got to know him a little bit. Kind of he came out of the stupor of mostly unconscious and you know I got to know him and then slowly over time the weirdest thing JD got better and JD was one of the few people I know maybe the only person I know who ever got kicked out of a hospice because he was living and he left and he lived for uh, another year or two. I'm not sure exactly, but he actually went back to where he came from in Florida, and he lived for, I think, two years, and then he died, right? And so I'm, I'm just saying these things about J.D. and about Stella because the whole experience was nothing I knew anything about. But the good thing about 
Eugene is Eugene knew a little bit about how to meditate and how to be present in the moment with what was happening. And so I learned as I lived it, because I, I didn't even get the training from Franco, who, who I love Franco, but he could have given me a little bit of training. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so I ended up being part of the hospice for many years. I ended up helping Frank train people and and I was also became a grief counselor at the cancer support community. And so it's a little bit of the uh, realm of my world that I've been part of. And that's been an important, meaningful part of me, my life, and my practice. And the whole um, realm of birth and death, right? Right? Great is this matter of birth and death. It passes swiftly. If you look up on the web, you can get a lot of different um, numbers about this. But in 2017, it said that uh, about four human beings are born every second. And two human beings die every second in this planet. Right? Four born, two die. And then these are numbers that came. So it's, it's actually, it's 4.2 and 1.8, right? I'm, I'm making it more, I'm rounding it, but it's saying 294,000 births happen today and 123,000 deaths happen today. 123,000 worldwide. And some from war and some from sickness and some from... Who, who knows what, and some just because we die, and that's normal. Uh, 50 million, approximately 50 million births this year, and 21 million deaths this year. So there's more of us coming, right, than are dying even, which is, I always think, an interesting part of the picture of life. So in Buddhism, in Buddhism, mindfulness of death is in the first foundation of mindfulness. It's a mindfulness of the body practice. And when the Buddha goes through, he goes through a number of teachings on mindfulness of the body, including mindfulness of breath and mindfulness of posture and Oh, I can't remember mindfulness of the elemental nature of the body. And then he comes to Maranasati. He comes to where you reflect your, your mindfulness. He would send practitioners to the charnel ground to contemplate a body that was dying, because often bodies that were dying were just left in the charnel ground during his at his time and place in you know what is probably northern India now, and so um, if if you were poor and couldn't afford to have your body cremated, it was left in the charnel ground, and so practitioners would go to contemplate dying bodies, and you would, and then he goes through a whole series of contemplations. You know, one day dead, three days dead, one week dead. I can't remember all the numbers, you know, three weeks, one month dead, 12 months dead, one year dead, something until it's all, it goes from being a body 
to going through different um, different perma permutations permutations of what happens when the body dies and often when we do this retreat in person I show photos of what happens we're not going to do it here because it's just it's it's still new to us on zoom and I don't know it's very powerful to see that I don't it, I didn't it didn't feel right to do that in zoom and we're doing a shorter retreat here too but it's but the the reflection that the that the monastic that the nun or the monk is making or the household practitioner is making when they're contemplating the dead body is is someday this body too will be like that body someday so we're watching a body you know the skin you know droops and then you know it actually comes off and the, the all the insides start to come apart and they get eaten by the bugs and the the beasts right and then there's just you know bones and sinews and and it's one reason why just in case anybody wondered why there's a skeleton here in my room cuz i teach here and it's part of practice in many many buddhist monasteries in asia to have a skeleton there because death is important right and it's part of our practice to see the dharma dharma meaning the truth of the way things are that this skeleton is actually sitting right here right it's just alive now and of course if you sense your body deeply you can actually feel the skeleton that is sitting right there the bones it's really really considered the earth element in buddhism the hardness right and it's part of our practice and please don't text me while i'm speaking uh, i'm sorry to say that but don't text me at all uh, i don't let meaning don't chat me cuz it pops up and then i look at it i i don't want to be disturbed when i'm teaching if you want to send a, a a a note to me send it to the retreat managers after and they'll get it to me that's thank you it'll make it much more efficient cuz otherwise you're going to chat me and i'm not going to respond in terms of these chats thank you um okay so the first foundation this body will be like that body right just contemplating that that's what happens to bodies it's not a mistake it's not that we've done something wrong it's not that anybody's done anything wrong everything that's born dies whether it's a mosquito or a cockroach right or a bird or a, or a coyote or whether it's you know whatever it is whether it's an eagle or or a or a um a crab right or if it's a um a, a trout or if it's whatever it is everything a shark you know the most powerful elephants powerful beautiful beings they all born and die it's not a mistake that's what's important here and that's what i'm stressing cuz there's so 
It's so, we have such a pejorative view of death. We think it's a bad thing. And I'm not encouraging anybody to die or saying it's good to die, but it's not, it's not a mistake to die. It's normal for all living beings. And of course, that's part of the Buddhist teaching. And, and even in, in harmony with what it says, right? Life passes swiftly, is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste your life. If you read the suttas, if you read the uh, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the, which is the teaching of the great awakening, Mahaparinibbana, Nibbana is awakening, and, and, and Maha is great, right? Um, um, it's about the Buddha's death. And even the Buddha dies because that's what happens to human beings. And he wasn't a god and he wasn't from another realm or another world. He was from right here, like planet Earth. And like everything on planet Earth that is born and grows and flourishes, hopefully, it dies. And so his, the story about his death is beautiful because typically he knows he's going to die. He understands in three months he's going to be gone. And so he goes and he goes to all the practice places where he started, all the monasteries, to speak to all the practitioners. And what he tells them is the Eightfold Path, to be mindful of right, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. He says, do the practice and, and, and live your life fully. Value and live what's important to you, whatever it is. Now he was talking to the monks, so he of course said, here's what I taught. That's all you have, that's what's needed. That's what helps human beings wake up from their misunderstanding and their uh, uh, what's called attachment to greed, hate, and delusion. And so for all of us, it's about, okay, what do we care about? What's important? What do you care about? What do you value? How do you want to live it in this short time that we're here. And it's short, I don't care if you're 18 or if you're 88, it's always short because you never ever know when you're gonna die. None of us know, and it could happen in the next moment for any of us. And, and uh, you know, I don't wish that for any of us, but it's also part of the deal. It's part of what happens for human beings. And so a little bit about, um, uh, let's see what else. I have so much material on this. I'm trying to remember, oh yeah, and this is a short talk. It's 45 minutes, although I may go a little late. I'm going to warn you all. You know, I've also spent time with my parents when they were dying and dealing with their death and uh, sadness and really, and the wonder of them dying because I mean, two different things. One about my dad dying. My dad lived in a ripe old age, 92, which is like 
you know, I, I don't think you can complain. If you like being alive, 92 seems like a good length of time. Personally, I don't even want that, but, you know, who knows? I'm not in control. But, um, uh, and he was tired of living. He, he would say that, and finally he died. And what was really moving to me was seeing his body after he died because I realized I had reified him in my mind. I had concretized him as an old man. And I realized, oh, he's not an old man anymore. And I was so happy he wasn't an old man. I was so happy to let go of the reification, I don't know how to say it better, the the idea I was holding of him as an old man, because actually I'd known him as many men over my life. And instead of holding on to the old man, now all those men were alive in my heart and mind. You know, whenever I was born, however old he was, which wasn't that old, no, he, was, he was, wasn't that young. I think he was 40 when I was born. And, uh, and, then, and then I, you know, watched him get older and be a different person over that era. And that was, uh, and it was so great to have the love for all the different times and who he was. And even as a complaining old man, I loved him then too. It was great. And, uh, yeah. And the one thing I'll say about my mom's death, just to put the, again, the not knowing, which is already in the room here. Many people have spoken to it about the not knowing. So um, my mom was dying in L.A. I went down to L.A. to be with her spend time and uh you know and and she was um pretty unconscious the last few days and i wasn't staying right at their house i was staying with my partner and another uh place not far away and uh and i and it, she was very close to death that was clear to me and then i went home that night and got up that morning and uh and i was in i took a shower and i was in the shower and I got, and I just, and I, and I, something happened. I don't know what happened, except all of a sudden I had some communication with her. And the communication was, it's okay for you to die, even though I'm not there. Right? And I didn't do that. It just happened. And it happened while I'm in the shower. And I said, it's really, it's fine. I don't have to be there when you die. And then I get out of the shower and the phone rings and I get a call that she died. Now, what happened? I don't know, but something happened because that was clear as daylight to me, you know. And I'm not what sometimes I'm not an intuitive or psychic or things like that, which some people are, but but it was clear to me that some kind of transmission of consciousness happened in that moment. And so it again, it points us to something about not knowing and waking up to the mystery of reality that includes birth and includes death. Because in my experience, they're both pretty uh, wondrous in a certain way. And I've spent, I've spent some time helping give birth. I've never given birth, but I helped give birth to my daughter and uh, 
And I've spent a lot of time with people dying. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya. Mindfulness of death. Mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and of great benefit. It will merge in the deathless. It will end in the deathless. So you're hearing the Buddha speaking, right? Mindfulness of death, when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and great benefit. It will merge in the deathless. It will end in the deathless. And deathless is one of the... What's the right word? Um, it's another word for nibbana, for awakening. That there's a kind of awakening that can happen and we'll see when we die because we let go of everything that we're used to and then something get, may get freed at that moment. Consciousness may get freed. Hmm. And I say this a little, I'll say a little bit, I said I would about my own, um, I had a, a, a near-death experience, sometimes it's called that. I don't really think of it that way, at least not in the classical terms. I didn't see a bright light and, you know, lights and going some, being called somewhere. But it was clear they didn't know if I was going to live or die. And it was clear to me, even though I wasn't, I didn't have... I didn't have a rational consciousness. It was clear to me that I might live or I might die. But I didn't have the uh, consciousness that could think that through. It wasn't a thought. It was a direct knowing that I could live or die. And this is right after I had this very serious bike accident and brain injury. And when I say there was no rational, it was like my brain got unplugged, serious, horribly unplugged. And uh, and we didn't know if I would live or die at first. And uh, and um, the one thing I want to say about it, um, and I, you know, and I spent five weeks in the hospital, long recovery, even after that. Um, but in that early part, right when they didn't know whether I was li living or dying. Just the wildest things happen to consciousness. And, you know, I didn't talk about this for a long time, for at least a year or two, even telling my wife, I didn't tell her what happened because she had to deal with really the trauma of me having this horrible accident and, and maybe dying. And it was, I think, I still think it was harder for her than for me because because I wasn't even there, really, in the normal way. She had to deal with not knowing if I was going to live and die in the doctors and the medical and where and when and which hospital and things like that. Um, and I'm just saying this because we don't know. There, there's. Let's put it this way. I've had many, many, many deep experiences uh, in meditation profound experience and understanding about things and also outside of meditation in the diamond approach also very profound 
But what happened in these in this in-between place that I seemed to be in right after the accident was so wild and so, uh, you know, really what it, what it taught me was I have no idea how wild reality is actually. That whatever I know is all good, but not to just be attached to what I know, which I was definitely attached to what I thought I know or how wise I thought I was or all that kind of stuff. And I knew a couple things. You know, I was a teacher and everything in two traditions, but it's so much wilder than I could have imagined. And, uh, and it wasn't bad, but it was definitely outside of the box for me. Mm. <clears throat> so I'll say a little bit more. See, there's so many different pieces about Buddhism, death, uh, and the deathless, right? Because the deathless is really, says that death can really um, reveal the magnitude of what I'm calling wild, the magnitude of our being or what's here underneath everything, even underneath the body and what's alive, right? In Buddhism, it's really pointed at as our Buddha nature or the absolute, or here's one of the great words in Buddhism, the unconditioned. It's a reality that's not based on any condition anywhere. And that's pretty wild in my opinion. And then there's more conventional ways it's talked about in Buddhism. This is from the Vasudhimaga, um, which talks about death in a very conventional way, um, or in addition to talking about death in the way we're talking about it, Marana refers to the rising and passing of all of each moment, of each moment. And of course, we've had a lot since I started talking, a lot of moments have arisen and passed risen and passed, boom, 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 boom. And marana is referred to in that way, right? And so here's from the Vasudhimaga, um, which is an old Buddhist text by, uh, by Buddha Gosa. <clears throat> and they say, in the highest sense, beings only have a very short instant to live. Beings only have a short instant to live as a wagon wheel when rolling as well as um, when standing st still at any time rests on a single point of its rim. rim. Here I have a round clock, right? So at any, at any time it's resting, it's on one point, right? Whether it's moving or whether it's standing still. And that's, that's what we're doing. We're resting in this moment. We're abiding in this moment, which is just a spark of a moment, right? And so just like the wagon, the wheel, you know, rests on a single point of its rim, just so the life of beings endures only for the length of a single moment of consciousness. When this is extinguished, so also is the being extinguished. 
It is said the being of the last moment of consciousness lived, now lives no longer, and will also not live again. The being of the future moment of consciousness has not not yet lived, now does not also live, and will only live later. The being of the present moment of consciousness did not live previously, lives just now, and will not live anymore. And so the projection we have that were that are based on the past and the future, on memory and and our ideas of what'll happen, it's just saying what's here is what's alive right now. And of course, you know, Eugene was alive a moment ago too. But Eugene is right here, and Eugene is actually not the same Eugene who was alive a moment ago. And you are not the same person who was alive a moment ago. You may think you're the same, you may feel very similar, you may keep the same name and everything, you don't have to change anything. But in lived reality, is, lived reality is only here in this moment, period. And then some more from one of my teachers, teacher Ajahn Chah. He said, determine in your mind to listen with me. Re- oh, here's this backstory. So Ajahn Chah was called to the home of a householder who was dying. And here's and she was ill and in bed and dying, and he came and spoke to her. And he said, determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. During this time that I'm speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it was the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. And he says to her, today I have brought nothing material of any substance to offer you, only Dharma. Listen well, understand that the Buddha, even with his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. When he reached old age, he relinquished his body. This very lump of flesh that lies here in decline is the truth. The truth of this body is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. And then he says it really beautifully. He so normalized it. He said, he said, the Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in the world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change and estrangement. This is a fact of life and we can do nothing to remedy this. But the Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and mind to see their impersonality, impers- uh Yeah, impersonality. They're impersonal, right? We don't own the body, and we're not the body, right? We we relate to it. It's here, and we need to take care of it, feed it, clean it, have fun with it, enjoy it. It's beautiful when they work well. I love the body when it works well. But I've also experienced the body not working well, and you want to be really kind to it when it doesn't work well. You, it's not a mistake. 
It's part of what happens. But he says to contemplate body and mind, right? So you see their impersonality. See that neither of them is me or mine. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his disciples. They differ from us in only one respect, and that, is, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw it could be no other way. Right? And it's really something that allows us to relax when we accept the birth and death, when we accept the impermanence of life, that it's just part of the deal. It's not... It's not something we did wrong that we're going to die. And this is true whenever we die. We're, doing, we're all doing the best we can. And we want to be really respectful of our goodness and our good-heartedness and of other people's goodness and good-heartedness. And when Suzuki Roshi was dying... Um, one of his students went up to his room and uh, he writes, I went up to Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death. He was in bed, extremely weak, his skin discolored. He bowed and I did the same, right? Then he looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, he said, don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. So that's a profound teaching from Suzuki Roshi. And of course, when you say in Zen, don't grieve for me, it doesn't mean you, you have to stop the grief. He was just pointing to something else. He was telling his student, I'm okay, right here, right now, like this, dying. And that is possible. Hmm. And I have a whole list of uh, of uh, uh, ways to contemplate death. It's nine different contemplations in Buddhism. I don't know if I'm going to do that. I'll just say a couple things before that. I'll say one more thing about uh, uh, Kabayashi uh, Isa, who was a great a poet and a, a priest in the Jodo Shinshu tradition of Buddhism, and a very famous uh, uh, haiku poet. And he had suffered a lot of dukkha in his life. And, uh, and his story was about he'd lost children. He was married, and, and uh, his firstborn died shortly after uh, the boy's birth. And then uh, two and a half years later, a daughter died, right? And inspired uh, Isa to write a haiku because he was very deep in his practice in terms of seeing the nature of reality and what's called emptiness and uh, a loose, what is often called in Zen is the illusory nature of reality, right? But he wrote this beautiful haiku. He said... The world of dew, D-E-W, 
The world of do is just the world of do. And yet, and yet. The world of do is the world of do. And yet, and yet. And when I hear this, I hear the beautiful heartfeltness and not knowing how to make sense of the paradox of uh, the magic of the world of dew. If you've ever seen like a, a little dew on a leaf, right? Just hanging there and, and the beauty of it and, and majesty of it. And yet it's going to go. It's just going to drop off. And we are part of that dew, right? And, and the and yet is his poignancy, his grief, his love for his children. Hmm. Hmm. So this last quote is from Sogyal Rinpoche, Tibetan teacher. He said, according to the wisdom of the Buddha, we can actually use our lives to prepare for death. We do not have to wait for death, the painful death of someone close to us to shock or the shock of terminal illness to force us into looking, exploring our lives. Nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at the time of death to meet the unknown. We can begin here and now to find meaning in our life. We can begin here and now to find meaning in our life. <clears throat> we can make of each every moment an opportunity to change and to prepare wholeheartedly, precisely, with peace of mind for death. In the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as one whole, W-H-O-L-E. In the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as a whole, where death is the beginning of another chapter of life. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected as we practice. Let's sit for a moment, please. Taking a moment, just feel the life that is sitting in your seat the liveness that's here. Feel it, sense it. Be mindful of it experientially.
Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.